Welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle. In this episode, and in fact in the upcoming episodes for a little bit, we'll be getting back to interviews. I've got a bunch of really interesting and really quite varied people who I've either recorded interviews with, or I'm scheduled to record interviews with, that I think are just going to create a really exciting and engaging series of conversations that I'm excited to share with you. In setting up these interviews, I took on board some feedback that I got from fans and listeners in various reviews and comments, which is to get guests on who I might potentially disagree with, which I have done, and you'll see that in um, these upcoming conversations that I'm going to bring you. I will say one of my sort of philosophies with just how I personally do interviews is I always aim for discussions rather than debates. I'm more than fine to uh, talk to people who might have quite radically different views to me, but I never want it to become just about trading talking points or just about hitting um, whatever is in the partisan press that week. So... My guest this week is a very prominent political philosopher who's been requested by a number of different people as someone I should have on the show, uh, Professor David Miller. He is Professor of Political Theory at Oxford University and Senior Research Fellow at Nuffield College in Oxford. What's distinctive about Professor Miller's work is he uses evidence from the social sciences to inform debates in political philosophy. His longest-standing interest or area of expertise is the idea of justice, originally social justice, but also global justice, and he's published three books on that, Social Justice, Principles of Social Justice, and more recently a collection of essays, Justice for Earthlings. During the 80s, he worked on the idea of market socialism and published a book defending that system, Market, State, and Community. And from that, he developed an interest in ideas of nationality and citizenship, on which he's also written a number of books, including On Nationality and Citizenship and National Identity. More recently, he's worked on issues connected to immigration and self-determination, which is what we took up in this interview, although, as you can tell from that biography, there's a whole range of issues that we could have discussed, and so we decided to focus um, mainly on his more recent work, specifically his last two books, Strangers in Our Midst, The Political Philosophy of Immigration, and Is Self-Determination a Dangerous Illusion, which was just recently published last month. And because I think on some of these issues, Professor Miller and I might have somewhat different views, I'm not going to preface this discussion with any remarks. Although, of course, on some issues, as you'll hear, we have uh, very similar views and are completely in alignment on, on issues like the need for more egalitarianism or more uh, democracy and collective decision-making in the workplace. The one, um, the one quick thing I will flag for you is I made a mistake on one of the questions I asked. Um, I said multiculturalism when what I meant was cosmopolitanism. It's just a dumb little mistake, um, possibly rusty at interviewing or something, but Professor Miller called it out in real time, um, so I don't think it should be too confusing, 
and it would have been kind of weird to edit around it, and that bit wouldn't have made sense. So it's in there, and that's just a small mea culpa on my part for that. But apart from that, I think the conversation pretty much speaks for itself, although, as always, I welcome comments, questions, angry outbursts, whatever, really. You know, hit me up on social media, send me an email, whatever works for you. So, with that as introduction, let's get started. As always, if you find these conversations interesting or valuable or important, please do help us get the word out there. Share them on your social media, forward them to friends, let people know about them, leave us a review, all that good stuff. And if you are able to support us in a more monetary manner, this podcast goes out for free and advertisement-free, and all of the costs associated with it are covered by listeners. So if you're able to chip in a couple of bucks, or whatever's right for you, check out our Patreon page. It's patreon.com stroke political philosophy podcast. Everything else is on our website, politicalphilosophypodcast.com. So, without any further preamble, let's get started. It is my absolute pleasure to introduce you all to Professor David Miller. Today, by Professor David Miller, Oxford University professor. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. I'm delighted to have a chance to talk to you on this uh, very illuminating podcast. Excellent. Um, so, how do you uh, how do you describe what you do? You're a political philosopher. What sorts of issues do you like to write and think about? So I suppose, in general, um, I like I take both the political and the philosophical parts of that description seriously. So I like to write about questions that I think have a real political resonance, and I'm not much given to a kind of uh, very sort of hypothetical kinds of issues and dilemmas that some moral philosophers like to engage in. But I like to try to keep what I write sort of geared towards the political world in a certain kind of way, so that maybe somebody who's a political actor of some kind, a politician, a civil servant, or even just a citizen, could relate to what I say and you know, use it in some way. So that's the kind of work that I uh, I like to do. And I will say, having just read a couple of your books, um, so I've just finished um, Strangers in Our Midst, which is your book on the political philosophy of immigration. They, if I can pay you a small compliment, they definitely have that quality of although they have philosophical depth, I feel like anyone who was interested in politics could pick up that book and read it because it's straightforward and clear and the examples given aren't these like like you say, completely out there examples that philosophers like to play with, but just stuff that you may well have seen in the news, you know? Yeah. Um, I think for that kind of topic, you know, which is a very real topic, a very controversial topic, um, you have to, one time, on the one hand, you have to try to approach it in a genuinely philosophical, 
spirit of inquiry and asking questions, but you need to be grounded too. You need to realize that it's a real question or a real lives at stake and uh, treat it in that kind of way. Um, we'll, we'll get back to um, immigration towards the end of the interview. Just as another sort of defining question, I just wanted to ask how you sort of self-identify in terms of like what political tribe you belong to and how you think about your own personal political ideology and, and uh, beliefs when approaching this work. I've heard you describe yourself as a liberal nationalist. Um, could you maybe cash that out for a bit and anything else you might want to say there? Yes, I mean, that's uh, certainly one... I mean, that's a description that locates me in one kind of debate. Um, so it's a debate about identity, cosmopolitanism, uh, you know, that national particularism, the state and so on. Um, it's not a complete political philosophy. I mean, I would also describe myself as a social democrat. Mm -hmm. um, in the past, I've written quite a bit about market socialism, which was how originally I got interested in the national identity question. Um, so I guess I'm a slightly, um, politically speaking, a slightly strange animal because in many respects, I see myself as standing on the left politically in terms of social policy, social justice, and so forth. But I guess some people think of me as more conservative because I'm interested in questions about identity, historic continuity, um, and so on and so forth, which are usually associated with people on the political right. I don't think I'm the only person who falls into that uh, category. I mean, Michael Walzer, who whose work I greatly admire, I think has something of that same... Uh, I, I was going to say ambivalence, that's not the right word, the same combination of leftist social and political views with concerns about identity and so on that uh, are more often associated with people on the right. But I guess, I mean, people sometimes say to me, I was asked about this quite a lot in Germany, um, where my book got translated very quickly and uh, seemed to be quite popular, People would say, well, don't you, aren't you worried that people on the right will pick up this book and find in it confirmation for some of the things they think about immigration? Hmm. And I sort of think that's a chance you have to take. You have to say what you believe. And uh, if people whose other views you disagree with are going to make use of it, there's nothing you can much do about that. No, I mean, I guess apart from, like, try to write with clarity and try to rule out what you don't mean by it. But, yeah. Um, I, I do have questions for you, particularly on um, the relationship between welfare states and immigration systems. But we're political philosophy podcasts, so why don't we start at the beginning, which is just, like, general ethical commitments. So you start your book on immigration by talking about what are the sort of duties, you know, classic moral philosophy stuff, what are the duties and obligations we owe towards other people, and in doing that you distinguish between strong and weak multiculturalism. Could you maybe outline what you mean by those, just to begin with, outline how you see those two approaches? Um, are you sure you didn't mean cosmopolitanism when you said that? I, yes. 
That is exactly what I meant. Thank you for correcting me. Okay. Yeah, no, uh, you, yeah, you're quite right. Multiculturalism is something different. So strong and sorry, I apologize, Professor. Strong and weak um, cosmopolitanism. Right. Well, um, so cosmo here we're talking about cosmopolitanism as a moral philosophy or as a position in moral philosophy. And uh, I take the strong cosmopolitan view to be one that says that the interests of every human being should weigh equally with us when we're engaged in practical liberations. So we have as much reason to, for example, assist somebody living in Somalia as we have to assist somebody living next door to us. I mean, for practical reasons, it may be easier to assist the next door neighbour, but morally speaking, the claims that they make on us are equally strong. So that's a view which discounts the relevance of any kind of association or membership at the fundamental level to moral duties. Now, the weak cosmopolitan view uh, says that we do have certain duties that are universal in that sense, but we also have non-derivative special duties to people we're associated with in various ways. So most obviously to friends and relatives, uh, you know, people we're closely associated with, but also, and this is where it gets more controversial, by extension to people we're associated with in various kinds of social groups and in nation states. So we have special compatriot obligations that are uh, stronger and more extensive than the obligations we owe to people elsewhere. And also that makes a huge difference to how, which, which starting point you take uh, when you're thinking about an issue like immigration, because you have to have a sense of what are the duties that you owe at a very basic level to people who are not yet members of your own society, but would like to be. And by at the fundamental level, you're talking about like what's ultimately normative, independent of, say, concerns about efficacy. So, you know, it might be the case that it's easier for a nation state to give money to its own citizens because it has existing welfare state institutions and, you know, the, the mechanisms aren't there to redistribute abroad. But someone could acknowledge that practical difference while still, in theory, maintaining a um, strong cosmopolitan view that if there were no difference in efficacy, then the moral obligations would be equal. Yes, that's very well put. I mean, that is, I think, any um, strong but sensible and realistic cosmopolitan is likely to say something along those lines that actually, in practice, we'll often have reason to privilege the claims and the interests of people closer to us but at the basic level, um, everybody would have the same strength of claim. Um, I had a question, just one of my questions I had reading this chapter, which was, do you see this as a dichotomy or a spectrum? In other words, is it either strong or weak for you? Because I was thinking about it and just where my own intuitions lie, and I don't know if I'm like 
as strong as the strong position that you flesh out, but I think I'm stronger than the weak position, or is, is that a coherent view to you? Um, well, I need to hear it spelt out. I mean, it seems... Um, so, I think um, it's important to notice that these sort of partial special obligations are somewhat amorphous. I mean, we don't really have a very good sense of how strongly we have obligations to people that, let me say, live in the same street. And we have some notion we ought to be good neighbours and, you know, if something goes wrong, we ought to help them out. It's, it's fairly amorphous. But obviously, what happens when you move up to the level of the state, um, the state, in a way, defines for us some of our obligations, because it requires us to do certain things. When you have to, for example, pay taxes, which, you know, almost all of which um, are used to support our compatriots, and a tiny, tiny fraction is used for anything else hmm. than that. So there we get a very clear sort of uh, defined compatriot obligation through the mechanism of the state which sort of is superimposed upon a much more amorphous idea that we owe something to um, uh, our compatriots um, that we don't owe to others. So your intermediate view, I'm not quite sure how that would then be defined. It might just be a matter of the relative strength. In other words... Yes, that's, that's exactly what I meant. Yeah, so, okay. like, you could put a number on it and say, like, 20% of your... I'm just making these up, but, like, 20% of your obligations are local and 80% are universal. I mean, the, the number's not important. And then someone else might say, no, it's the other way around, if that makes sense. Yeah. So, so in... in... In very practical terms, that might um, uh, you might think that if you take uh, any of the existing liberal democracies, you would think that they ought to have that, uh, their budgets should go much more to people um, overseas, to people in poor countries, than on on their own citizens. That would be, I guess, that would be one way of expressing that that stronger, but still not. 100% sense of personal mm -hmm. Um Yeah, no, that was kind of an aside um, based on my own intuitions and nothing really more. So it seems like... I mean, even that, though, you could debate within the paradigm of just, like, pure efficacy, as there might be, like, strong reasons of practicality as to, like, how much you spend at home and abroad. The, the thing that gets brought up most as a sort of purported counterexample to a sort of strong universal, a strong cosmopolitanism, as you put it, is the idea of the family and that it gels uneasily with our intuitions that we have special obligations towards our children or our wives or so on and so forth, right? Yeah. Um, so, so... There are some there are some people who would call themselves cosmopolitans, even strong cosmopolitans, and they would say that they are actually willing to accept special obligations to family members, but then just deny that nations or nation states are in that respect like families. 
So they would just say there are special features of the family relationships, closeness, kind of emotional bonds that exist between family members that just aren't reproduced at a much higher level. So the analogy doesn't work. So, so people like me often use the analogy, and then cosmopolitans push back and say, no, that analogy doesn't hold. Uh, there are special features in the family. Uh, so I guess that's, that's the way that the debate tends to go at that point. Would you accept this as um, a description of the contours of the debate, in that there's a variety of belief systems we have, um, be it a sort of universalizing liberalism, uh, something like utilitarianism would fall into this as well, that seem to suggest we should treat people, you know, according to the strong cosmopolitan view, more or less the same, but obviously the family seems to pose a counterexample to that. The question then becomes, well, if the family is a counterexample, are larger units, in this case the state, also yeah. a counterexample for that. And to my mind, it would depend on why you say the family is a counterexample, because there are some things that, there are some properties of our relations to families that we will hold in common with the state, and some that we won't. So it would depend on why we see the family as different. Does that make sense? It does. I mean, the, so the kind of answer that I'm going to give is that uh, the family is a, a valuable institution. It, it, it embodies a certain idea of the good. Um, family relations are a, a valuable part of human life. And then also, it's, it's part of the value that within the family we do acknowledge these special obligations. So, you know, a parent who gave no special attention to their own child try to treat all children equally would in a very important sense be failing to acknowledge the special value of the family and it's important that it's, it's important to the family that it is a kind of partial institution in that way and i suppose that i'm going to make the same argument about um uh the nation state so it's it's um for various reasons it's a valuable institution it performs various kinds of not only practical but also identification functions for people. And then it does depend on the idea that we owe people within it special kinds of obligations. It's a form of solidarity, you could say, uh, and a very, I think a very important form of solidarity because it's the institution which can protect us against all kinds of life hazards in the way that no other institution can. That, that's, that's really the, the, the key thing. Um, you know, we're vulnerable creatures. We need to band together to, uh, to protect ourselves from all kinds of hazards, whether these are natural hazards or hazards created by the human beings. And we do that through this institution, which therefore plays a very central role in giving us a valuable life. Would it be a coherent view, and I ask because I think this is my view, would it be a coherent view to accept the positive consequentialist effects of both the state and the family, and accept that, well, recognise, I guess, that the family delivers intrinsic 
goods to people, like emotional support, solidarity. I, f I find it quite difficult to imagine a society in which families didn't exist and people still had their broad range of psychological and emotional needs met to recognise both that states, like you say, protect us, that families protect us and lead to good outcomes. Instrumentally, they're also, at least in the case of families, intrinsically good in that it just does seem to meet some of our psychological needs. How far states can go that they meet our psychological needs, that we do just need this much larger form of camaraderie, I'm more sceptical about, but I could even grant that, but then push back on the idea of um, obligations or associative obligations, that we have specific duties to members of that community um, over and above um, other human beings because we have gained from that community. I would frame it much more in terms of um, opt-ins, so if you choose to have children and to raise them and to make a commitment to them, or if you're you know, I got married, I stood up in front of my family and signed a legal contract and made certain public avowals, I can create special obligations for myself, and you know, maybe that would be the case with states as well, but could I accept the good consequential... Sorry, I'll, that was quite long, I'll sum up. Is there a coherent position where I could accept good consequentialist outcomes and accept some idea of inherent value that we get just from having those relationships, um, while remaining sceptical that we have obligations simply by receiving those goods? I'll pause there. Right. Well, I mean, first of all, about the family, I mean, it's worth remembering that though of course we we choose to create new families of our own we're also born into families and most of us think that we have obligations to parents which are not voluntarily assumed we we just get those by being born so i think it's wrong to think of the family as a purely voluntary institution so the interesting question about the state is whether it would continue to perform the functions that it does, which we can accept are very important functions, if people did not have the identification and the sense of obligation to compatriots that actually supports it. And the, the, the strongest case is going to be uh, where you know, war breaks out and people have to be prepared to sacrifice their lives in defence of the state, and so you have to ask the question, you know, what could bring it about that people have such a strong sense of loyalty to the state that they would do that? And it seems to me you do then rely upon this bond. Now, of course, uh, wars are hopefully a very exceptional situation, but even in ordinary peacetime, people are being asked to, in various kinds of ways, make sacrifices. They're being asked to serve in various ways politically and so on. They're being asked to contribute through taxation, through various kinds of uh, social service. And to motivate all that, I think you do have to have this sense that we have uh, special obligations. Um, so there's two sides to that. Um, I'm going to give a quick thought on both, and then feel free to take me up on either of them. Um, on the family being voluntary side, 
Mm. You know, it is true that, you know, you do not choose your parents, you do not choose um, to sort of have gained certain goods for them. Um, so it's not as if there's ever an opt-in, but I think a sort of common-sense morality does recognise that there are many clear opt-outs from that. So, for instance, um, you know, if parents are abusive to children or something like that, um, or, say, for instance, um, if as an adult um, a particular person um, chose a lifestyle, say they decided they were or recognised that they were gay and their parents um, said, we don't accept this, we're only going to welcome you back into our home if you're in heterosexual relationships, that person might choose to opt out of that family structure and would no longer... Um, would no longer necessarily have strong obligations to that family over and above, you know, the, the standard dictates of morality that would, would go for any person. So that's not purely voluntary, but to, it's not purely involuntary either. So that, that, that's my point with family voluntary, voluntariness, or however you want to say it. With regards to the state, um, I mean, again, could you, could you just accept that it is true that the state requires people to have certain beliefs, in other words, that they have stronger obligations to um, citizens of the state than they do to non-citizens of the state or citizens of another state. Could you accept that that's true as a factual description of the world, while just saying, you know, sometimes for certain outcomes people are required to believe things that may not be foundationally true, like utilitarianism gets this all the time. Would the world that had the highest utility be one in which everyone believed in utilitarianism? Like, there's a coherent position where you just say, yeah, maybe we, you know, Plato's Republic, right? Maybe we just have to lie to people. It's an uneasy position, but it strikes me that could be plausible. Um, okay, so just going back to the moment of the family, I mean, I think what you say is uh, right in the sense that the family as a moral unit does depend on uh, a certain kind of fair treatment of its members. And if the treatment becomes radically unfair or abusive, then I agree with you that you would have the right to opt out. But I think what, what you don't have is the right to escape just because it becomes quite burdensome to remain within. So the, the classic case is you know, an elderly parent mm. who needs uh, social care, and maybe you're the only person who can provide it. And then you can't just say, well, uh, now I free myself from these bonds. So what I think you asked, I wasn't quite clear where you were going with the state, but I think you were suggesting that... Um, national identities or national senses of belonging might be a sort of useful fiction, like a platonic lie. Yes, if I wasn't clear, that's exactly what I'm, I'm, I'm saying. That's, that's one response one could have to that. Right. Well, um, I mean, I'm on record, actually, as saying that um, so one of the issues that arises about national identities is the extent to which they are mythical. Mythical in the sense that, at any one moment in time, we tend to tell ourselves a kind of story about the people we are. And this is often 
uh, historical story about the things we did in the past and what held us together and what particular virtues we have as a people. And then uh, people point out that um, that you know to to a, to a considerable extent this relies upon at least selective interpretation of the facts, if not outright falsity. So there are various kind of myths about heroic actions in the past and so on and so forth. And so then the question becomes, um, should we therefore, if that's the case, try to dispel and uh, free ourselves entirely from these myths? And I think the answer is, well, no, not necessarily, um, if in fact, well, as long as these myths are not so much distortions of the historical truth that we can only accept them by actually blacking out whole sections of history, the fact that we gloss events in a certain kind of way um, that may be actually important to us for moral reasons. So one of the um, examples that will be familiar to British listeners, maybe not so much to Americans, is for Britain, the, the, you know, the myth of Dunkirk mm. is a very important, um, plus been a, recently a superb film uh, reconstructing this event. And um, that's often held up as uh, an exemplary aspect, an exemplary example of, of the distinctive features of the British people. So here's an emergency, and all of a sudden, all of the ordinary citizens who are able to do so go onto boats and go across to Dunkirk to rescue the, the troops at the beginning of the war. And um, now, uh, now, people might have written books called Dunkirk, the Necessary Myth, right? And this, these books will then pick through the evidence and show you know, the familiar list of qualifications. Not Dunkirk didn't happen, but it probably didn't happen in quite the way we like to believe, hmm. with everybody you know, behaving with huge kind of patriotic spirit and so on and so forth, nobody cheating, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So now the question is, is it good or is it bad that we have in our heads this idea of an event that we think of as em emblematic of our history. My own view is um, it's probably good. Hmm. So, say, I'm not, so, I mean, people should be free to write the books that say Dunkirk, the necessary myth. They should be free to write those books. And, you know, from time to time, we should go back and think again and ask questions. But it's not a bad thing if we have certain beliefs about ourselves that are inspiring in certain kinds of ways. So that you, there could be two justifications for the sort of... Because after all, like, the platonic lie isn't... It's held up as a good thing. This is something Plato is recommending we do, right? Um, so there could be two justifications for that. One is intrinsic. Um, you know, people just need to feel parts of communities and have these sorts of identities, and it's just sort of good for them in an innate sense. And then the other is that it is useful or even necessary 
for um, the maintenance of the nation-state and democracy and some sort of sense of collective autonomy. Yes. Um, I, mean, I, I think that's right. I mean, uh, one, of the, one of the questions that any, any democracy has to answer is, uh, you know, why here? You know, why, why this people? Uh, the question that's sort of put under stress when you get situations like Catalonia at the moment, where one group wants to hive off, or at least part of one group wants to hive off. And so, um, and that's a question which can't be answered, actually, from within democracy itself. Democracy tells you how to organise a political unit. It doesn't tell you where that unit should be located, what its boundaries should be. And so I think we have to have a pre-given sense of identity in order to answer that question. That's one of the things that national identity does, and it does it by including us in a, in a larger narrative that runs back in time and we hope runs forward in time too, and creates a kind of solidarity then among the people who are included in that narrative. So I think it has that function. So... Moving forward then to self-determination, you've you're 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 um, bringing out a book on this, right? Um, so, in terms of the instrumental value that you could have in an idea of national identity, that would support democracy because democracy it's not necessarily clear who gets the vote and why. You need some sort of group for it to operate in. A national identity gives you an idea of who that group might be, and self-determination is the value of being able to be a part of a group that can exercise autonomy. Did I track your views right on that? Yes, um, that's right. So, so... Well, first of all, one of the important things is that um, democracies run on trust. Um, it's very important that the members should trust one another sufficiently that they're willing to accept outcomes, maybe majority outcomes, that they personally disagree with. And I think this sense that we are united in certain ways and that even though we disagree, nonetheless, we can trust each other, not to do terrible things to each other, is, is very important. And then I think, so the connection to self-determination is that although um, you know, some national identities might be regarded as sort of fixed or um, set in stone, actually the, the kind that are most valuable are those that can be developed and reoriented over time. And so part of self-determination, I think, is a kind of ongoing discussion about who we are, mm. which is expressed in concretely in various ways, what kind of policies we follow, uh, how do we see our role in the world, what kind of society are we, how do we relate to the natural environment, these kinds of questions. So we're all the time engaged in this sort of remaking of this common identity. And clearly, uh, self-determination is very important from that point of view. So, one final point on this um, is 
We've gone from talking about the family to talking about states and ways in which they might or might not be analogous and, you know, the goods and obligations we have might or might not be analogous. One issue that you also explore is the idea that obviously there's a bunch of different um, identities we can have, groups we can be involved in, who we are invested in for identity reasons and also receive goods from, that operate at a middle level between, you know, the family and the state, so regions, workplaces, clubs, charities, all of these sorts of things. Um, how do you how do you start thinking about those as vehicles of self-determination versus, say, the nation-state? Right. So I think, I think it's very important that um, if we're thinking about now about self-determination as a value, why it's important. We shouldn't just confine ourselves to um, the national nation-state level, because it's valuable in all kinds of contexts. And I think that the common element is this idea that uh, we find ourselves in the world in, situated in various places, and we want to have the sense that these environments that we inhabit are under our control to the, to the extent to which that's feasible. I mean, it's not feasible to have total control because each environment is connected to other ones where other people have their own self-determination projects going on. But I think this sense of being sort of locked into a system where you have no chance of influencing the way the system develops is very alienating. And so to the extent to which you're able actually to play some part in controlling the way that the future goes in whatever group or organisation you're in, um, that seems to me very important. So I've long been an advocate of you know, worker self-management in firms. Mm. Um, so the sense, you know, that the workers themselves and firms have the right to play their part in, in setting the direction of the firm, I think is very, a very important uh, aspect of self-determination. And the same is going to apply to geographical neighbourhoods and so on and so forth. So I think um, it's a value that is, is important in all these spheres. But at, at the national level, I suppose the... What, what you have to say there is that, of course, the numbers become very large, and so the amount of influence any one individual has is very tiny. But on the other hand, the issues at stake tend to be also bigger because they're kind of life-determining questions. Um, and so that's why it's important at that level too. So in the book, I talk about various ways in which I think it may be possible to involve people in self-determination at that level. And I'm quite keen on uh, things like citizen assemblies, which could be vehicles, I think, for people to have self-determination on questions of national importance. Yeah, I mean, that's honestly what, what brings the argument home for me is when we do moral and political philosophy, we spend a certain amount of time talking about the family because it does seem to sit uneasily with some of our more universalizing theories. And then obviously, as political philosophers, um, you spend a lot of time talking about the state. Um, but it doesn't strike me that, say, a large corporation, you know, can exact 
quite heavy penalties on its members, they often feel a sense of collective belonging to it, there's a case of mutual obligations if you want to think about it that way. Um, and I'm very convinced by what people like um, Elizabeth um, Anderson or Philip Pettit to a degree have um, have written about forms of economic democracy and it's unfortunately just not really part of our political conversation at all. Yeah, no, I'm completely with you on that. And uh, this would also, I think, be a very important way of combating this growing, ramifying inequality that we see where people at the top of these organisations seem to be able to siphon off unlimited amounts of rent from the organisation. I think that could never happen in, in an organisation where the CEO was made responsible to the workforce as a whole. I mean, they, it just couldn't happen because why, why would people be willing to allow so much of the, 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 the productivity of their organisation to be channeled into such a small and narrow section. So I think it, it has many, it's many, many advantages, and I'm entirely with, as you say, Elizabeth and uh, Philip on that. Yeah, I think just on the CEO example, Fine. Um, there's there's an there's an aspect of representative democracy which I think is really underrated, which it's not just about the ability to decide between issue platforms or even to sort of get your representatives sort of on the board or to have a say. There's a specific power which is really underrated, which is the ability to vote specific people out of power structures. Um, so I'm thinking about America. If we don't like our current Republican Supreme Court justices, or even to some extent the composition of the Senate, there's not a lot we can do about it. And that's actually a problem, because sometimes what needs to happen is it's not just the workers get to decide to vote on their health care plan, or they get to have a seat on the board. The specific thing that's wrong with the company is Joe Bloggs, ex-individual, needs to go. And then, like you say, you would never get, if workers had that type of power, you would never get these like quite insane concentrations of wealth that we um, are rightly concerned by. Yeah. No, I think that's important. As you say, I think even if you have um, a more sort of deliberative idea of how democracy should ideally work, um, you you also always want to retain that other aspect of democracy as just a matter of having the right to to choose people for positions and to expel them um, when they're when they're not performing or not performing as you want them to. So yes, absolutely. Okay, so we've gone from sort of obligations to identity. I mean, that was just a, an issue I've spent a certain amount of time on and um, I think is really important and um, underexplored or under not, not sufficiently talked about in actual political discourse. Um, but turning back to, you know, self-determination and national identity in the context of um, the nation-state, if we follow the argument through um, back into um, 
Strangers in Our Mist, Political Philosophy of Immigration. Um, there's several things, positive things, that we get from a sense of national identity that could potentially... I'll, I'll put it more neutrally, I'll say could potentially be in a relationship with the types of immigration system that we choose to have. Um, so you identify things like democratic norms, loses consent, culture of democracy, um, as well as uh, welfare state institutions. Um, could you sort of talk through, again I'll put it neutrally and just say, what, what, in what ways are the goods we might receive from a sense of national identity affected by how what immigration systems we might choose to adopt? Yes, well, I mean, immigration, uh, I think, which is often seen as, in very individualistic terms, as a matter of, you know, the claims of a particular person who might want to join a society, I think it really has to be treated also as a collective phenomenon because if it's taking place on a significant scale, then it's a kind of process of gradual social remaking. And so I suppose I see it in general as part of self-determination that we have some control over that process. That doesn't say what kind of policy we should have. That should be left open to discussion, but we just need to recognise that um, we are actually, we're, re we're remaking over time the body that makes the decisions about membership. Um, that's on the assumption, which I think you have to make, that when immigrants arrive, they should proceed in due course uh, to become full citizens. And I, I have no sort of trap with arrangements that would deny them that right. So then the question is, well, my, why might you um, even be concerned about the kind of difference it would make to have immigrants? And I think it's the case that um, insofar as uh, immigrants arriving come with their own cultural norms, religious beliefs, practices, and so forth, you are changing the fabric of the society in certain kinds of ways, which you may or may not, you may like it. You may actually think that actually having greater diversity in religion or in social practice is a positive thing, or you may think that it's going to create too much social friction or tension or a danger of uh, sort of ghettoization of the society. That will be the kind of outcome. So I think a lot's going to depend on um, the kind of society you have, what the status quo is, you know, how, how well prepared the society is for the process of immigrant integration, and then just generally what kind of society you want to build in the future. So I'm not really trying here or anywhere to lay down a kind of preferred immigration policy, but just to indicate the kinds of factors that I think can legitimately be taken into account, should be taken into account, when immigration policy is being made. Could we say, though, that there are two sort of sets of social decisions that we make in, in regards to sort of um, 
cultural acclimation, if you want to call it that, which is both are very big and complicated, and we needn't get into, like, specifics. Um, but there's the decision to allow people in, and then there's the decision of how you structure um, integration. So, mm-hmm. you know, a society might allow in 10,000, 100,000, however many immigrants a year, and then you can imagine um, a spectrum of outcomes depending on how they structure housing, how they structure schooling, how they think about integration more broadly, where on the one end you might have something like um, contemporary Paris, where you have large neighbourhoods that are almost exclusively um, Muslim immigrants, and that, that can go their entire lives going to different schools, different workplaces, living differently, um, to people who live a, a few miles away from them, to something like, say, New York, where I live, where there certainly are neighbourhoods that are more heavily Bangladeshi or um, Dominican or, or what have you. But by and large, we, with maybe a few religious exceptions or something, you know, we go to the same schools, we work in the same workplaces, and people know and sort of meet each other. Um, so that that isn't ending in a question mark, but I, I do sometimes worry, and I'm not putting this criticism on you, because I think your work is sensitive to this, but that our discussion about immigration only or can disproportionately focus on the first question, just the overall number coming in. But in some ways, the more important, or not the more, an equally important question, is how we think about integration or the lack thereof once people do get in. Right, yeah. So um, this is, this is quite, um, quite a difficult question because societies obviously approach integration in different ways. So you have a society like Canada, which is a high immigration society, um, very much geared into um, actively promoting integration with strong multicultural policies. And that's the kind of decision that Canadians have made, that this is the kind of future that they want to have. Um, You could have another kind of society which was also very open, and this seems to me was classically, historically the case in the US, um, perhaps not quite so much today, but sort of classical late 19th century US, you have a lot of openness, a lot of, integra- a lot of immigration, but it's uh, you know every person for themselves. You have to struggle to make your way in a society that does very little for you, and you have to rely very much on your ethnic group to provide social support and so on. So that's another kind of model of mass immigration, but um, laissez-faire afterwards. And I think the European states are are different because they are initially well integrated. They have strong welfare systems, and immigrants coming in have to be inserted into those. And these depend upon various kinds of reciprocity in in the way that people contribute and draw out from these systems. But I think there you have to have a certain mode of integration which uh, does ensure that people don't find themselves in separatist uh, little enclaves. Because I think experience shows that that leads to breakdowns in, in trust and 
tolerance and so forth. So I think a lot, you don't have a, okay, you have choices to make, but you have to make them under the constraint of a certain kind of starting point. And so the policy you have has to fit the, the background against which you're making it. Yeah, and I mean, I agree in so far as you don't want... So there's kind of a view of, like, having separate communities that could come from either, like, the extreme right or the extreme left. On the extreme right, it would just be a tribal, maybe even racist, I just don't want to sort of live around those people, as it were. On the extreme left, you sort of have this idea that, like... You know, no one culture is is better than any other. Everyone needs to be able to sort of have their own culture. You can't culturally appropriate from any one else's, um, which I think can be maybe well-intentioned, but I've always been both on immigration as well as sort of race and racism issues more broadly, which I've spent a little bit of time on, on the podcast, an integrationist. I think, you know, people certainly should have particular, you know, like there might be German Americans or Irish Americans who have certain traditions and identities going back to a homeland, but ultimately are part of that society and participate in that society and believe in it to some extent and aren't fully just balkanized off from the rest of it. I don't, I don't know that, I don't know that good stuff is coming from a full separation, be it intentioned by a sort of hardcore liberal multiculturalism or the traditionalist xenophobia or racism. Right, right. So I think we're on the same page. So you would also, I think, accept that people should come to identify with the society they're joining and regard it as their homeland, as it were, and become uh, you know, willing to wave the national flag if that's the appropriate way of sig- signalling your uh, membership. I mean, that this seems to be the one foot. But integration has various kinds of aspects, and obviously, just the physical going to the same schools, living in the same neighbourhoods is very important. But I think there's also a matter of identification, and um, as you say, the the American system is to have hyphenization. You have a you're a German American, where you identify with both parts of the the hyphen. Um, now, other societies. Don't have quite that system, but it may still be important to um, to induce a sense of identification for the reasons that we talked about earlier. About if we if you if you accept the picture that says that national identities are important ways of supporting you know, social cohesion and uh, the welfare state and so on, then you would want incoming immigrants to adopt those identities. And uh, it's clear that this varies quite a lot from one case to another. Some cases are very very successful and very easy for that that to happen. Other cases, it's more problematic. Different immigrant groups um, seem to be able to make that adjustment to different extents. Yeah, well, well, to answer the implicit question, Yes, um, but and I think a lot of people sort of on the left who think of themselves as pro-immigration are um, sceptical or, or sort of re- reluctant to say yes to that question. So I'd want to make a few caveats to that, um, or just notice what it does in actual real-world political discourse. For one thing, my v- motivation for saying yes isn't merely about 
supporting the nation state uh, because that delivers good outcomes. It's also a sort of John Stuart Mill um, belief in the idea that encountering being encountering diversity is valuable for people in and of its own sake and both native-born people and immigrants should interact with a range of people if for no other reason than that our our lives are enriched by it so so my saying yes comes from a few different streams secondly i'm not saying you're saying this i'm just saying this is how it is used in contemporary political debate i would want to say that um uh, investing in um, a, a society and, and believing in society isn't just praising and supporting its particular form of government. It can be, and in, indeed often requires, criticising uh, the decisions and policies and personnel of that government. And there can be a nasty thing that happens where people who are immigrants, or maybe even have been immigrants for some time, or are part of a community that, you know, immigrated but still has distinct religious practices or something, can sort of be told, if you don't like it, go back home, when they do what all of us do, and it's necessary for us to do, which is um, to criticise the government. Um, and the final point is um, that there definitely are concerns about how far democracy can really survive if there isn't um, belief in it and trust in each other. And I'm, I am not sanguine about the state of liberal democracy right now, but the groups within it that I'm not sanguine about, by and large, aren't immigrant groups, that's a larger point. But when I when I see breakdown of trust and belief in the system, I mostly see it among native-born people. So that was quite a lot there. Feel free to take up any of that. Right. Well, I mean, you're you're right about where we are now on this. Um, and the I guess the issue is um, how does immigration play into this? So some of this sort of uh, alienation from or, or um, criticism or, of liberal democracy seems to be um, having to do with the sense that the the balance is tipped too far in favour of minority groups and somehow the, the mass of citizens have somehow been left behind um, where governments sort of privileges various Minorities, including immigrant minorities. Um, I mean, this to me just is another aspect of the failure of in integration, because um, it already says that somehow immigrants are being singled out as separate or different or not really part of the system, and so um, you know that I think just kind of I think reinforces the view that we. We both seem to share that um, integration's very important, and therefore um, the the kind of in, in as far as we're talking about going going back to the immigration policy, the policy has to be integration compatible, um, and I guess that means that the numbers of people taken have to be in line with the integrative capacities of the society. One very sort of simple and basic level, there has to be enough room for the people in the sense of enough school places, housing places, hospital places, and so on to cope with them. 
but I think at a more at a deeper level, um, the, the kind of sociological processes that in, integration involves, involving social contact and so on, have to be such that the um, you know when 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 you go to a a school class, you want it to be genuinely mixed, such that the kinds of sort of peer-to-peer communication that occur between people from sort of indigenous backgrounds and people from immigrant backgrounds can go on in the natural kind of way that they do. Um, whereas if you have a school class that's, you know, 90% immigrant, then something very different is happening in terms of the transmission of uh, cultural values and so on and so forth. So I think that that's, that's why um, the, there is a sort of connection between this desire to avoid those dysfunctions that you talked about and, and, the, and the worries that we have at the moment about the state of democracy with the idea that you do have to have a kind of policy on immigration that takes account of these problems. Um, so the thing is, though, I think there's um, a step missing in that story. First of all, when I talk about, like, concerns... Um, uh, about people not buying into democratic culture. It can be on these sort of culture war issues about, like, how diverse is society. But I am also thinking about, like, um, when Trump um, tells his supporters, hey, if you beat up that protester, I'll pay, I'll pay for your bail, and the crowd cheers. That's, that is just straight authoritarianism. It's not... Um, it's completely orthogonal to the variable of immigration, or if there is a story to be told between the two, it's quite long and convoluted. So I was just making the point that there are threats to democratic culture from native-born people that really just don't have much, or don't clearly have much to, to do with this at all. Um, but with regards to the story about, you know, there is a fear that, um, I think you said the balance has been tipped too far, in favour of a minority um, or immigrant groups, and now, and because of that, we get a sort of social unease, and because of that social unease, people um, are lacking in trust and support of the system, and that can have bad consequences. Um, there's no step in that story that I'm disagreeing with. I just want to add an additional step, which is the the belief that minority groups are now being privileged over, let's just say, white men, um, exists because it's been manufactured. And it's been manufactured for quite um, cynical and transparent um, uh, political um, ends. And it's not merely um, a problem of immigrant groups. So I've done door-to-door -door canvases um, where I've just gone and talked to Republican primary voters to get them to put pressure on various elected officials about stuff. And the belief that now, because of um, affirmative action and diversity quotas, the belief that white people really can't get ahead in the workplace is very, very strong amongst Republican primary voters. And I don't think it's fake. I think they really, they, they really believe it. But that belief is false. There's no evidence for it. And it's there because they watch Fox News. And I watched Fox News quite a bit just to get a handle on it. And every single night, 
they're being told that. And, and it's not an accident. They're being told that because the Republican Party requires them to believe it and requires them to be in a state of elevated racial fear in order to keep them as part of that um, partisan identity group, because it's not going to get their votes on its economic policy alone, and they know that. So, yes, I think you can tell a story, because it is certainly the case that many white people feel that we're the new minority now, um, but I don't think it's just a one-for-one causation that immigrants come in, you know, you get fears of racial threat, and that can lead to social breakdown. It's more like immigrants may or may not be there. Um, Native-born minority populations, such as African Americans in the United States, may be there. Um, But one side of the political spectrum needs people to be afraid racially, and so quite cynically creates that fear. And, you know, I, I think it's a huge problem, but if I were to try and solve the problem... I would start with the half of the political spectrum that's creating the fear and um, not various minority groups who are being utilised in the service of that false narrative. Sorry, that's quite wrong. Very interesting. Um, And yes, exactly, I can see this. However, I would just add something else. I mean, looking on the other side of uh, of the political spectrum, Look at um, contemporary liberals. Um, so there's a big push in the direction of diversity. I mean, certainly here, that's a huge issue in many organisations, including universities. Diversity, diversity, diversity. Now, what does diversity mean? Um, okay, well, it's something like, um, you know, when you're considering who to appoint to various positions, always think about issues of gender, race, religion, and so on. Now, how does that look to somebody, the people you've been knocking on the doors of, right? When, when liberals uh, go on and on and on about diversity, They'll presumably read that as a kind of signal that they'll reinterpret the diversity claim as a claim to the effect that, oh, yes, we must give privileges to people in these approved groups and push back white males, right? Um, So, okay, what I'm suggesting is that the the kind of... um, state of affairs you're describing, uh, which, as you say, is being, I'm sure, radically reinforced from the right in the US, and maybe to some extent here as well, is also in a strange kind of way, I think, being uh, contributed to by liberals um, repeatedly stressing the importance of diversity, as opposed to um, simply putting forward equality of opportunity, meritocratic type arguments for fairness and equal treatment. So I think liberals have some have to take some of the blame too. They, of course, will claim that their words are being misunderstood, but I think that's something that they have opened themselves up to. But perhaps not being quite clear enough about what they really mean when they talk about diversity. 
I think that's right, to a degree, and I've actually, um, worked on, I'm probably, I'm definitely not the most qualified person to have been on these things, but I have, on, um, various, um, workplace diversity initiatives, and I've actually spent a certain amount of time, um, in the practice of, like, if you want, you know, a particular hiring policy, what does that actually look like at the level of the job description and the interview and stuff like that, right? Um, and um, I'll be the first to say that those on the left can communicate their goals, intentions, and practices poorly, and that might feed into that. I would say, though, that's a very different... Um, type of moral responsibility, though, because there are a large class of people out there who have been convinced, and I think largely erroneously, that um, the power structures that be now no longer care about white men and are indeed actively shutting them out. So if you've already got that priming, and you hear a lot of this diversity talk for the first time, yeah, it's it's very um, natural that you would go, oh, look, this is exactly what Dave Rubin and Jordan Peterson have been telling me about. I would say that there's a difference in um, the level of... Um, of uh, 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 moral responsibility between um, phrasing things clumsily and in a way that, you know, might trigger this fear and intentionally creating the fear in the first place. I would say one is a lot worse than the other. And then just with regards to the equality of opportunity point, I'm more than fine to say equality of opportunity as a role. The, the thing is, though, when you look at the process of hiring someone, there's about 10 different key decision points from um, creating the job description, writing the job description, where you post it, how you shortlist, how you interview, how, how you hire, right? And all of those tend to have mechanisms, which may not be understood, which can cut against people from outside the culturally dominant um, group. So just to take an example, a lot of jobs, um, you know, will ask for a bachelor's degree, even though it's not required to do the job. And in an age where getting a bachelor's degree can cost six figures, that cuts against people with um, dependents, um, people who might be from disadvantaged backgrounds. Now, you might need the bachelor's degree or not, but that's just a choice you make that will affect the diversity of the pool. Um, likewise, there's a lot of evidence um, that job descriptions tend to be written using very masculine coded language, and that can be off-putting at a subconscious level to female applicants. There's evidence that the more um, bullet points you put on a job description, um, the more white men you'll get, because men will apply for a job where they only meet 50% of the criteria, women need to meet 90 So there's all this stuff, right? So yes, equality is a goal, but I don't think enough thought goes into just how much all of the practices we take for granted can work with or work against various sorts of social prejudice. And the problem is, when I say all of that, um, the person who's convinced that I'm out to get white people has just already tuned out, because as soon as they start hearing me talk, they think, 
I'm not doing this to try and achieve equality of opportunity, I'm doing it to shut them out because they've been told to think that. So sorry, that was a bit long, but that, that is just something I've worked in. Those, those are very interesting points, and I completely agree with, with all of them. I mean, I think you're... So this is really... Um, another way of putting it is to achieve real equality of opportunity, you have to work fairly hard at it. And... Um, not only, um, as you say, in the actual mechanisms of selection, but also um, in the extent to which you are willing to compensate for inequalities in the place people are coming from. So, um, you know, a kid from a, uh, a poorly performing school who's achieved a certain kind of grade may well be as promising, have as much potential uh, as a kid from um, a private school who's who's achieved a higher grade. And so you should factor that into. That's what real equality of opportunity mm. means. And I absolutely take those points. So my, my point was really just about the language in which um, you present the arguments. Um, and I, I just think that a sort of vocabulary of fairness, equal treatment, hiring by merit, equality of opportunity. Um, that's going to resonate better with people. Then you can make the point to achieve those things. You have to do quite a lot of stuff. Um, whereas the opposite thing, which is that somehow it's just good in itself to have a certain number of people from racial minorities or a certain number of women in position. And so that was in its, just in and of itself that was something you were trying to achieve. That's what's going to feed this perception that somehow, um, you know, this, the, the, the white male is being sacrificed on the altar of political correctness. Um, so, yeah, that's my sort of... <laughs> it's my liberals. Um, now think, think hard about what your language is doing in these in these cases. Yeah, I think language is the right word as well, because I often make the point that um, political belief systems or political ideologies aren't just um, propositional claims, they're vocabularies with which we communicate with each other. And I think there's something conservatives, frankly, do better than those of us at the left, which is to be ideologically bilingual, in a sense. You have a certain language that you would use in your own group, but then a certain language you would use when you're trying to make arguments to people who are not already bought into that belief system. So yeah. I think, you know, if you're on the left and you're having an intra-left conversation, it's fine to use words like diversity and... Um, you, you, you know, intersectionality and microaggressions and all of these things. But, like, that is, you know, it's just an efficacy point. I think a lot of people on the left will push back and say, it's not my business to have to explain myself to a racist. But actually, you know, it kind of is, right? Like, if you're trying to advocate for a social policy for all of society, you're going to have to explain yourself to people who are not buying into your foundational moral assumptions. And then it, it's not a matter of, like, one set of language being right in some absolute sense. It's just like, you know, if I'm in France, I'm going to get my phrase book out and try and order in French, you know what I mean? Yeah, 
Yeah, we need we need a common language, a, a common political language to, to to thrash these issues out. Absolutely. Okay. Um, let's let's give you a plug to end it then. So the books we've been discussing are Strangers in Our Mist, the political philosophy of immigration, and um, self is is sorry is self determination a dangerous illusion? Did I get that right? Yes. Um, that's the latest one that's just out this month. Oh, okay. So they're both out, and I assume um, listeners can find those on Amazon and fine booksellers anywhere. That's right. Excellent. Um, Professor, listen, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate your time and um, expertise. 